Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 181 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Bill McGoldrick, head of original programming at the Sci-Fi Channel. He was brought in two years ago to oversee a major overhaul of the network's lineup, which is designed to lure hardcore science fiction fans back to the channel with smart, ambitious shows. The new lineup includes adaptations of many classic fantasy and science fiction novels, including works by Arthur C. Clarke, Aldous Huxley, and Frederick Pohl, as well as books by newer writers who've been guests on this show, such as Dan Simmons, John Scalzi, James S.A. Corey, and Lev Grossman. And now, here's our interview with Bill McGoldrick. All right, so we're here with Bill McGoldrick. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so first of all, just tell us a bit about how you first got interested in science fiction. <laughs> um, well, I was that kid that liked to read a lot, um, read a lot of everything. Um, but then, you know, in those teenage years, probably like most of your listeners, I was very attracted to sci-fi um, because I found it more interesting and more challenging than the books that were sort of being jammed on your throat in school. Um, so it was just, it, it was probably through books, probably through comic books, <laughs> um, probably, you know, through TV shows and, and things like that, where I, you know, just developed the appetite for it. I mean, so what were some of those books that you were reading that you thought were challenging and interesting? Well, a lot of them, you know, you know, the great part about my job is some of them uh, are airing very soon. And I, Childhood's End and Arthur C. Clarke was, you know, early influence on me, you know, Asimov, like everybody else, you, you know, I was I was looking for short stories back then. I was a big uh, a big DC Comics guy, um, big Batman fan. So anything that was either the original or derivatives of Batman, I was very into when I was really young. Um, so you know the the gamut, you know, and then sort of as I got a little bit older, I would watch the Twilight Zone with my dad. That was you know we would watch it in repeats and stuff like that, and then I you know I would get interested in in those kinds of stories too. So um, no, there was no kind of one moment where the bell rang or no one book where it said, okay, now I'm a sci-fi fan. But you know I'm I'm uh, in my early 40s, so I was just as influenced by Star Wars as everybody else. And and then I, you know, as as you'd read the background about movies like that, I'd want to read more about the sources that you know Lucas was influenced by and stuff like that. Yeah, and you told me that you were an aspiring writer at one point. <laughs> um, yeah, when I came out to uh, when I came to USC, I wanted to try writing, um, and I learned early on that I'd be much better off reading scripts rather than writing them. So that that was early in my college career, and you know I took all those courses in college where you write little short films, and then you you have the the class read it back to you. And I remember those days kind of in horror right now. Um, but it did help me develop an empathy for writers and, and a real respect for anyone who tries that and anyone who, who really makes a career of it. You studied film or TV or something like that? I actually minored in film. I could never get in the USC film school, um, but no matter how many times I tried. So I ended up minoring in film and majoring in business when I was at USC. And so then what did you do after graduation? Like, How did you become a TV executive? So I was, uh, you know, kind of bartending all through college um, and, and kicking around and trying to break into the industry and passing out my resume wherever I could. Um, and it found its way to a guy named Stephen Chow, 
who was at that time a producer. He had sort of made his career as a uh, reality executive. He was the guy that greenlit cops and America's most wanted and kind of rose through the ranks through Fox and then sort of through a lucky break. Um, he, uh, was named USA and sci-fi president. And then, you know, I, I came to this company in the late nineties and that's where I met Bonnie hammer, who was just shortly thereafter named general manager and then president of the sci-fi channel. And at that time we were, um, small enough that we were doing development for both USA Network and Sci-Fi, and I was kind of the guy that would cross over from both channels, and everybody knew I had an interest in Sci-Fi, so they would throw me all the Sci-Fi projects, and one of my very first shows that I worked on was called The Invisible Man, um, and then there was a show on USA at the time called G vs. Z that had some Sci-Fi, um, and, and we did some things like 4400 and Dead Zone and those shows. And that's, that's kind of where I cut my teeth on science fiction shows, but I, it kind of ran the gamut. I worked on, you know, shows like Monk and Psych and, and, and the gamut of the USA shows, but always had a very special um, interest and ambition for sci-fi programming. Well, that's, I didn't realize that your history with the sci-fi channel went back that far. That's really interesting. Yeah, it went, it went back to the very, very early days. Um, so, uh, been a long road. I know a lot of people um, that were kind of growing up with a lot of people here. It's very much home here. And so did you, like, how was science fiction seen in the TV industry? Did you encounter resistance to doing science fiction shows that you wanted to do? Yeah, it's so funny how it's evolved. Uh, you know, it would be every time you brought in a sci-fi pitch, you know, in the late 90s or heard one and kind of got excited about it. The resistance you would face is people would say it's too sci-fi. You know, um, it's not relatable. It's not. And, and I think that's why you, you would see in those days so much watered down science fiction that was too sci fi for an audience, maybe that was not into science fiction, but not sci fi enough for for the people that are probably listening to this broadcast right now. Um, but that's changed dramatically over the last few years. I think, you know, shows like Battlestar Galactica, I think, was a bit ahead of its time in changing that perception. Um, and, and now when you think of Game of Thrones and you think of Walking Dead and you think of the shows that we, we have on our air, the 12 Monkeys, and, and, and hopefully the Expanse and Childhood's End, which are going to be on next week, that it, you do not have to apologize anymore uh, for being sci-fi. And and I do not at all, not hear enough from Bonnie Hammer or Dave Howe or anybody here feel a pressure to sort of water it down in any way, which is nice. So do you think that if, if Game of Thrones or Walking Dead had come out five or ten years before they actually did, that the audience just wasn't ready for it? I think the audience was probably ready for it. I don't know that the industry was ready to um, to execute it the way those shows have executed it. Yeah. Okay, well, so tell us about how you ended up back at the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, well, it was one of those things where uh, we, we, we had a change of ownership. Um, Comcast owns the corporation, and they recognized very early on, probably uh, you know, behind the scenes, Bonnie Hammer and Dave Howe really persuading them to recognize this, that there's a lot of opportunity in this channel if we just had the investment. So um, it was clear to probably... Bonnie and Dave that, you know, there was going to be a big investment in the channel and they were looking to really sort of beef it up. And they, they approached me about coming over, um, kind of 
right before that investment started. So, um, I, you know, I had a great job before, but again, I knew that I liked this stuff and, and I saw the opportunity just as they did and, uh, was very excited to join a couple years ago. Right. And so your, your job title is executive vice president, original content. So yep. what is, what exactly does that involve? Um, that, uh, that's, you know, I oversee all of the original content that's generated out here in Los Angeles. So that's all of the scripted shows you see and all of the reality shows that, that come out of uh, this coast. We do have a very active uh, group that does acquired originals, which uh, are, are acquisitions that we sort of guide. Um, so there, there's lots of programming, but I oversee kind of the bulk of the original program. It also includes um, alternative uh, uh, reality type shows too. So the face-offs, the 12 monkeys, the, the shows that you know that are on our air, um, I, I have oversight over and oversight over the executives who work day to day on those shows. Right. And so you mentioned that Comcast is making a much bigger investment in the channel now. So what are you planning to do with that bigger investment? Well, um, I think you're going to see the results or you, you know, by the time this podcast airs, you will have seen the, the results of, you know, uh, two big things we've done with that investment are the expanse and childhood's end. Um, it was a priority to get back in the event miniseries space. This network's had a long history of, of, you know, event miniseries around the Christmas season, around the fourth quarter. Um, and, you know, now that we have the investment, we feel like we can really take on some big titles like Childhood's End. Um, so that, that's one thing we've done with it. Um, the Expanse is another. Past that, you're going to see uh, Magicians uh, early next year. Um, so we've, done, we've invested very much in that. We've invested kind of all across the network. Um, when you look at the amount of original programming we've had, we've just tried to beef up uh, the amount, but also be in a position where we could take strategic big bets on properties or shows that we're passionate about. Right. And so you mentioned that Childhood's End was one of your favorite books growing up. Were you the one who's kind of, was it your idea to bring that to sci-fi? No, that was a lucky, um, I was very lucky in that it was in development here uh, when I arrived. It did not have a script. Uh, it had a uh, producers, Mike DeLuca, Kiva Goldman, uh, as well as a really smart writer named Matthew Graham. Um, but w very early stages um, of development. Uh, so one of the first things I did was reread the book. Um, and it was one of those books. I, I reread a few books in that first month. Um, and I'm not going to mention the other ones because some of them, you know, you remember in from your childhood in a certain way, and then they don't hold up, you know, when you get to be an adult. But what's so impressive about Childhood's End is it not only held up, I think I like it more and understand it more at this age than I did when I was a teenager. So, um, so that was very exciting for me. And then, you know, with these big event miniseries, you really have to be a year and a half to two years ahead from when you greenlight because the effects get so complicated and the time to build effects properly is, is so long um, that you, you have to go quickly in order to make your, your dates. So in short order, we got that one going. Um, and, you know, like I said, now you're going to see the result of it. I mean, how involved are you on a creative level with something like Childhood's End? Are you giving suggestions and things like that? 
Yeah, yeah, that one, uh, that one, it took a village uh, on that one because it was such a big undertaking. So the studio, the UCP studio, Jeff Wachtel, Don Olmsted, Brian Crow in particular over there, her team, and then my team, which uh, was Paul Shapiro and Eli Kirshner. Um, we were all in on that one. There was lots of conversations about how to adapt it. There was lots of back and forth between us and the producers. Very collaborative. Um, we all just wanted to honor the book. Um, and, and honor the book in a way that, you know, we feel like we'll give him the recognition for being ahead of his time and really being the novelist who started it all. Um, and that's what I'm most proud about is just I think that I, I, I think that uh, people are going to really like it. And I think that it'll it'll, you know, sort of later uh, cause them to be interested in him and what he did and, and really give him the recognition that he was just that so prescient because all of the themes and all of the, all of the things he was writing about are so uh, valid today. Right. But it does seem like a, a challenging book to adapt. Cause I mean, there are a lot of characters that takes place over a long span of time. Uh, it was set originally in 1953. So the world has changed a lot. Could you just talk about what, what sort of, what were some of the big challenges with bringing it to television? Well, the book is written um, sort of in episodes, in a way. So, so there's main characters that dial, uh, maybe not in episodes, in, in um, portions. And so there's main characters in the book that sort of die of natural causes, which don't really lead you to the most dramatic um, miniseries or, or movie telling of the book. So um, the one thing, we, the, the, probably the biggest change we did is sort of thread characters throughout the entire uh, six hour where they weren't threaded throughout the entire book because the span of the book was, was a bit longer. So we condensed time and in condensing time you had to make other changes too. That was probably the most difficult one, was just try, try to figure out how to make that narrative work um, in a way that uh, the Arthur C. Clarke book didn't really have to. I mean, there's also the challenge of, and this isn't a spoiler, but there's a, you know, there's a significant um, portion of the book that deals with utopia. <laughs> and the whole point of utopia is that there's not a lot of drama and not a lot of conflict. So we had to find ways during that section to um, to bring some of the conflict from the end of the book uh, up and, and do some inventing. But I, I just think Matthew and Akiva and Mike and that whole team uh, did a great job of making sure the invention didn't cut against the, the, the spirit of what the book wanted to accomplish. Right. And, and one thing that's really striking about Childhood's End, even though it was written uh, in 1953, is that it still is provocative today. Um, was there any um, nervousness about uh, presenting this story today? No, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, we're, we're sitting there looking at the book and we're like, well, there was a Cold War brewing between Russia and the United States. Um, there, was, there, was, uh, there were lots of fears about where the world would go and would we, you know, would, would this nuclear race lead to our own extinction? And if you're going down a checklist, it was sort of like still relevant today, still very relevant today, still on that front page in all the newspapers today. So we didn't, I don't think we had to change as many of those themes as we anticipated going in. Um, and that made me happy. And I think that made all of us happy because that's overall what we're trying to do um, with the science fiction we're putting on our air is to not just do, you know, big adventure action shows or 
things like that, but we really want people to walk away thinking about the episode or the miniseries or the pilot or whatever you watch on our channel in a way that makes you a little bit more informed about your world or reflect on where we are. Um, I know those are lofty goals, but that's, that's what great science fiction does. So that's our goal in our programming. Right. And without going into any spoilers, one of the most striking things about this story is the appearance of the aliens. Uh, mm -hmm. And nobody was uh, uh, leery about that at all? or. Oh, we were very leery about that. I mean, that that was probably, you know, in the 18 months from pressing go to uh, to the shot miniseries, we probably, I want to say we probably spent a whole month just on that, uh, on how to do it, whether C we, we do CG or prosthetics or some combination of both. Um, can we, you know, cast a, a person who could pull that off? It was very, it's a very important part of the book and it's a very important part of our show. And we did not take that lightly. So leery, fearful, <laughs> paranoid, all of those adjectives applied out to our state of mind over that one issue. Right. And so, so I think it's just so exciting that you guys are doing book adaptations like this. And it seems like you have a really heavy slate of book adaptations coming up. Could you talk about yeah. why you decided to move so heavily into adaptations of existing novels? Well, you know, it, it, there's sort of the pragmatic TV executive reason, which is it always helps to have an IP, a piece of intellectual property that's got a following that people are passionate about. It, it, it helps. You're not starting from zero. People know it. You've got your fan base, your core fan base that's anxious to see the adaptation. So there's that. Um, but there's also, you, you know, there's also the other reason of, you know, these novels do give you a good indication of the world you're creating and, and creating a world is, is so important in sci-fi programming and that it's nice to have essentially a Bible, which are, which are the, the either one novel like childhood's end or a series of novels like the expanse or, or, or the magicians, because you, you know where you're going and you can get ahead of it and plan for it um, in, in a way that you can't always do when a, when just a script that's not based on anything comes in. But that's not to say we're going to be exclusively, um, you know, not based on novel because, um, you know, I, I, I would never close myself out or the network out to, you know, that great script that just sneaks its way through. Right. Uh, I did want to talk about what some of these books were though, because, uh, some of my favorite novels are on this list, but so the ones I wanted to mention in particular, you have another Arthur C. Clarke book is 3001, the final odyssey. Uh, you mentioned the expanse and the magicians. And then also coming up, I wanted to mention uh, Dan Simmons' Hyperion, Frederick Pohl's Gateway, John Scalise's The Ghost Brigades, Robert Charles Wilson's Spin, and Daryl Gregory's We Are All Completely Fine. Yep. That's just really exciting. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a big slate. When I hear you rattle them off like that, I'm like, yeah, we do. We, we actually have a big slate of books coming as well. Um, and you've keyed on the ones we're most uh, passionate about. So how did those particular books come to your attention in the first place? Well, you know... I, all of them are probably represented by someone in the organization who is a big fan of it. <laughs> you know, um, Brave New World, um, and I hope I'm not outing her on this one, but Bonnie Hammer, our chairman, uh, is is a big fan of and always has been. Um, 3001, uh, an executive named Eli Kirshner, uh, you know, is was pushing that one really hard. And, uh, you, you know, I think we all got more interested in 3001 as we dove into childhood's end and kind of, you know, 
fell back in love with Arthur C. Clarke. Hyperion, it feels like the entire city of Hollywood in Los Angeles comes up to me and tells me about that book everywhere I go. <laughs> so, so I credit the entire industry. But I could go on and on. Every one of the books, uh, you know, there's an executive named Brian. Brian Crow, who talked a lot about some of these, and everybody is pushing um, it on a certain level um, inside the company. Right. And so Childhood's End, The Expanse, and The Magicians are either out now or will be out within a month or so. And then what else is coming up? Which of those is coming up soonest? Well, it, you, the order is um, Childhood's End and The Expanse at the same time, and then Magicians will follow those two early in next year. There's also a show um, called Hunters, uh, which Gail Ann Hurd of The Walking Dead is executive producing along with a real superstar named Natalie Chides, um, which we went straight to series on. That'll that'll be in that same section. We you know we have uh, Twelve Monkeys season two um, as well, and then we're we're figuring out kind of the rest of the year right now as we speak. Okay. I mean, one thing we were talking about in our last episode is that we think that Game of Thrones and The Expanse turned out so well because the authors were involved with the TV shows. Do you have plans to involve authors with some of these other TV shows? Yeah, we've done it on every show. I mean, the, the, the authors who are alive are very, are very involved um, in the show. I mean, Lev Grossman's been all over Magicians. Uh, the, the showrunners, John McNamara and Sarah Gamble, are talking to him all the time. Um, you know, the Expanse guys are on the show um, as writers. They've written scripts and even in the first season. That's how I would very much prefer to do it always. You know, when it's when we, when we can, that's, that's how we're going to do it here because we want to, we want to honor that um, core fan base that is passionate about the material. Otherwise, you know, why are you doing it? So um, that and and if you haven't gotten it already by the by, you know, our conversations and, and the stuff we've greenlit, we are really trying to focus on that core audience. So and I, and I think the way to do that is to respect the stuff there they really liked in the first place. Right. So if a Hyperion is so admired in. LA, how come it's taken so long for it to come to <laughs> Well, any of your fans who have read the book um, know that it's not, it's not the most obvious adaptation. There's different points of view, there's different stories, um, and it, it, doesn't, it, it needs development and it needs, uh, you, you need to make a lot of choices in terms of the narrative and where you're going to start the story and who you're going to focus on. And there's just so many different great avenues you can pers- you could pursue in that book, um, and and those are always the most challenging. Um, and it's kind of for the reasons I just talked about because you you do want to honor that fan base, um, but that at a certain point you have to have a TV show that's intelligible <laughs> um, that people are <laughs> that people are going to understand. So, it, you know, it's taken us a while on that one, um, but for all the right reasons. Yeah, so I guess if people don't know, Hyperion is structured like the Canterbury Tales, where there are uh, seven or so characters who all tell their stories. Um, can you say anything about how you've decided to adapt it? Um, no, because we haven't made those decisions yet. <laughs> we've, <laughs> we've, we've heard takes, we've looked at some storylines, all that stuff, but we haven't hit on the one we like. Um, so I would love to tell you that that's you know, that we're very close and we've got it nailed, but we just haven't done it yet. But it is a priority and it is something we want to figure out sooner rather than later. Right. 
Okay, so then another thing I really wanted to ask you about is that the Sci-Fi Channel has something of a mixed reputation among hardcore science fiction fans. I'm sure you're aware of this. Do you want to say, like, kind of what's your take on that? Well, you know, I, I, hardcore science fiction fans are, are a very discerning, very passionate group. You know, I, I was at Comic-Con one time and, uh, you know, I got into a long discussion slash argument before I was with the channel. And, and, and there was a group of guys there that felt that science fiction only takes place in space. And it was kind of a fascinating argument. So anything Earth-based, they didn't think was science fiction. So some of it is just the, what we love about our audience, their passion and their, you know, their opinions. Um, I, I think, they're, you know, to a certain level, you're never really going to be able to satisfy everybody, right? Um, I think another part of it might have been, you know, before before we were properly funded because of the work Bonnie Hammer and Dave Howe have done w- with the channel and just with with, uh, with our new owners, you weren't able to do hardcore science fiction um, like the stuff we have coming, particularly The Expanse, because you just simply didn't have the budget. Um, and if you don't have the budget to, to go up into space and to to try to make that feel authentic, you might have to do some things that, that don't play to the core um, as much as everyone, as, as much as sci-fi fans would like. So that we, we, we are sensitive to that and we're trying to, we are trying to appeal to that and to, to that audience. That's why I'm so excited to be on your podcast today, because I think you speak to the audience that, that, that is going to be excited by this stuff. And, and we're trying to bring them back to our channel on a more consistent basis. Um, but, but I'm, I'm happy that I can talk kind of directly to that audience and on podcasts like this and, and, and tell them that we're sincerely, we get it. And, and that's, that's what's motivating all these green lights and all these books that you mentioned and, and, and a lot of our development. Right. Well, yeah, because I mean, it's, it was kind of striking to me that I just in preparation for this interview, I went back and looked through all our old episodes. And I don't think we ever really have talked about sci-fi channel shows on this podcast uh, since we launched it in 2010. And it's not because we're like boycotting the channel or something. But the, the shows <laughs> have just not been what my friends and I were talking about. And certainly the things that you have coming up are things that we're going to be talking about. So I definitely see a, a change in our posture toward the sci-fi channel going forward. Yeah, I, I I get it. You may not have been watching us, but we're all watching you, and and our, our press people are fans of this show, and 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 fans of all the outlets where we can reach that, and we're we're trying to be sensitive to that. So I'm I'm, I'm really happy to hear you say that. Uh, uh, okay, so I had a couple questions from listeners I wanted to ask you. So uh, so Megan Smith asks, are any female sci-fi writers going to be having their works adapted by the Sci-Fi Channel? Yes, we are. We are actively pursuing one book in particular that I'm not going to mention because when I do, the option price will go up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, that is that you know that is a priority of ours, um, and, and I would love there. There's so many I mean, great female authors out there today um, who don't get the credit they deserve, um, really. Um, and I think if we can just get one of those shows on the air or even in development, that people will really take note. Right. I mean, so on our Facebook page, uh, on in this discussion, Carrie Vaughn posted that she'd like to see adaptations of Nancy Kress, Zena Henderson, Ursula Le Guin, Octavia Butler, Robin McKinley, Anne McCaffrey, and Lois McMaster Bujold. And then Megan says she'd like to see Sherry S. Tepper. And I'll just throw in myself, Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie, and The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison. Those were both guests on our show 
in the last past year or two that I, I really thought that, those books were That's terrific. great. Well, I can tell you that within that list you just rattled off is is the book I'm uh, chasing right now that, that that we're chasing that we're trying to uh, to get. Um, so, is it Megan who asked that question? Yeah, Megan Smith. Megan's going to be very happy if we <laughs> if we figure this out. And and here's the here's the thing: even if we don't get it, it's a competitive situation. Um, it will end up on another network. I hope it it will end up on ours. But she'll see. Very, I think within the next three or four months, there'll be an announcement about the network that gets uh, gets this particular novel, and it's included. The author's included in that list. Okay, excellent. Uh, and then, so Anthony James says, I've heard that you're quote unquote D rebranding. Can you clarify what this means and whether you will be discarding the uh, sci-fi SYFY name? D rebranding. Um, I, you know, I'm the programming guy, so I'm not the brand guy. Um, and, and my general take on that sort of stuff, um, when you look at other channels around the dial, whether they be FX or AMC or, or, or something like that, I, I'm a believer and I'm, probably any programming guy will say this, that the programming dictates the brand and it sort of doesn't matter. I mean, who knew what AMC even stood for or what they were about until those shows came. Um, so I don't, I don't really get into the, the branding marketing part of the, the gig. There's other people here who do that. I'm, I'm just trying to make the shows speak loudly for, for who we are and what we want to be. Right. Yeah. Cause I, I don't know what, I mean, what was going on behind the scenes, but I mean, certainly among my friends, there was a perception that the channel was attempting to distance themselves from uh, science fiction fans. And I don't know wh- how big a deal the name changes, but there were things that would happen like um, on Battlestar Galactica, different actors would say like, oh no, this show isn't science fiction because it's good. And I mean, that kind of thing like, really rubs fans the wrong way. And <laughs> I just wonder if there's, uh, I mean, cause I, what I, what I would love to see for once in my life is, you know, an actor on a show like Battlestar Galactica would say, no, this show is science fiction and it's one of the best shows you've ever seen. And this is an example of how good science fiction can be when it's done right and watch it and see for yourself. Yeah, I, you know, all of that stuff's been said by other people and all that, you know, all I can really speak to is the last two years um, since I've been here. And uh, in the last two years, it's it, it certainly has, has not been that. I've never been told to apologize for being sci-fi or say this isn't really sci-fi or any of that stuff. In fact, I've been told just the opposite. And, uh, and you know, again, I think, our pro- I think the programs we put on the air will reflect that and hopefully convert all of those people. Hmm. All right, cool. So, uh, so John Joseph Adams asks, I'd like to, uh, you probably can't answer this, but he says, I'd like to know how much those Childhood's End and Magician's promo packages cost. The Childhood's End one has a freaking video screen in it that auto-plays a full-length trailer when you open it up. And the Magician's one was full of Breakbill swag, scarf, notebook, hat, etc. Um, I, I know you can't say how much they cost, but do you want to just talk about how I, you know what, the, those... The truth is, I don't even know how much they cost. <laughs> um, but I like them just as much as he does. Um, yeah, it's we, we do like to do that stuff. Um, this network's had a long history of, of that, but it's really, in the la- again, in the last couple of years, really, in you know, in the last even few months, the, those kits have astounded me. Um, and we have, a, we have a new press team. We have some people who have ascended up the marketing ranks who have, who have just taken it to a level that's, you know, I almost want to sell them to people um, <laughs> because they're so spectacular. Um, but, but no, I, I, I don't know. I can't really speak to the cost. Yeah. No, I, and I, I just got on this list for these things, so I just started getting them. So I don't know what kind of things you, the channel has been sending out in 
prior years, but this stuff is really impressive. I actually, the, the scarf I got, it's a Breakbill scarf, which is the school, it's like the Hogwarts-like school in The Magicians. I was like, this is a pretty nice scarf. I've actually been wearing it around. And my, my girlfriend says, like, I think you're the only person who would actually wear wear this stuff, <laughs> you know, wear the stuff they send you. You know what? Keep wearing it. Keep wearing <laughs> it until that show premieres. One of the fun moments I had is I happened to be in New York when we showed that to, uh, to Lev Grossman. And he flipped out for it. He just completely flipped out for it because he, you know, he is a flag waving fantasy fan, and he just felt that that captured exactly what he tried to do with the show. And um, um, it was a really nice moment to see an author uh, get to experience that what you did. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so then Rory Carroll says, "Are TV shows like theirs still working on the quote-unquote appointment to view model, or are modern shows gearing more toward the binge viewing trend we've seen with box sets and video on demand?" Well, look, I mean, you know, the the answer is is both. We're you know we're all big TV fans here. I am. You know, I have a almost three year old son. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the viewing I do at home because of that little three year old can't be live. Um, so we're aware of that. Um, our, uh, there's a big percentage of our audience that still watches these things live. Um, but we know it's, it's not just live or DVR, it's VOD, it's, you know, pre-linear, it's, it's online and various sources. We, we, we really are, we've loosened the rules in terms of how we get these shows out there. Cause we want to get them out across every digital platform we can. Anywhere you would consume, you know, television or entertainment, we want to, we want to put it there. Um, and ultimately, you know, we, of course we'd love people to be watching them live and stuff like that, but it's, it's a changing marketplace and we're just trying to be ahead of those changes. So we recognize that. I mean, you know, a gigantic portion of the 12 monkeys audience, uh, came to the show after it's live airing uh, on, on all these various platforms. So it, the measurement's getting better. It's not where it needs to be. Um, the monet you know, the way to monetize that is not where it needs to be yet, but we're certainly, we, we certainly recognize that. Well, right. For example, you put out the pilot for The Expanse just as a downloadable file. And I think you're doing the same thing with Magicians. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that, that's meant to, we know where a lot of the, what's so great about the sci-fi audience is, you know, through these message boards, through the IO9s of the world, AV clubs, your show, we know where a lot of these people live. We, you know, we know where, we know where they are. We know what's important to them, you know, and, and this is the first time in my career, um, with the expanse that I've ever been a part of one of these pre what's called pre-linear releases where we release it online before it's air date. So I've been trolling these message boards in a way that I never have before because I find it so fascinating. You, you get kind of the direct feedback and, and I'm very happy with, uh, with what people are saying because, you know, I've, I've been on those message boards on shows before that they're not into and that's, that's not fun. So it's, it's really fascinating to see it, to, to have kind of that direct relationship with, with the viewers in that way. Right. And I would really recommend people check out these pilots because I think that I think a lot of people have an idea of the production values of a sci-fi channel show. And these new shows completely blow that out of the water. I mean, Childhood's End, uh, The Expanse in particular, I mean, they, they look as good as anything on television. Or at the movie theater, honestly, <laughs> when I, there's certain sequences in the expanse and I, I will, I will tell your viewers throughout the duration of the expanse and childhood's end. I, I very much agree with you. I think the effects are great, but there's one episode in particular episode four of the expanse that we did some real heavy duty effects. 
Um, and, and, and it was one of those episodes that I read and I loved. And, um, I was just sort of looking at, it and I'm like, are we really going to be able to pull this off? And I was very happy with it. So, so that's uh, I'm glad you I'm glad you feel that way because that's the goal. That's the goal with this investment is to really show people that we're we're serious and and when obviously you can't do that every time. You can't spend that kind of money on every show. But when we feel appropriate, we can go there in our in our company. And I, I have to keep saying it because I think if they hear it, they'll keep investing. But Comcast, <laughs> Comcast, Bonnie Hammer, Dave. Now, um, are all uh, very, very, the, the wallet will open for the right show. And that's what makes it so exciting to have this job right now. So in all this time that you've spent kind of trolling message boards, uh, what, uh, do, do any interactions that you've had stick out in your mind? <laughs> yeah, I did go in, the, you know, I did get into a, uh, a, a sort of conversation with like eight people obviously they had no idea who I was. Um, and it, it, you know, it was sort of around the, uh, the, the space operas. Um, and it wasn't, it was very informative for me, um, because it, they were very specific on kind of what they wanted and, and what shows they, uh, loved. And it was, it was a lot about Battlestar Galactica. Um, and it, it was just a great forum for me to just sort of ask questions without them knowing who I was. Um, that we could then take back to, you know, our development. I mean, what were some of the kind of things that they wanted to see in a space opera show? Well, they, you know, one, there was one woman in particular, and it was really interesting because we, the, the conversation was about the amount of um, combat and the amount of war um, you'd want in a, in a space opera. And it, it, is it, is, does that come with the expectation is just as you're, exploring as you're out there in space is part of the quid pro quo of a space opera. Okay. I want to see some heavy duty battle. And this one woman in particular didn't like that piece of it. She was much more into the, um, sort of anthropology of, of, of exploration and learning about new places and new cultures and culture clashes and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, uh, three other people vehemently disagreed that they, you know, that they wanted to. So it was just sort of an interesting uh, point of view on it. And that's, what's so great about these message boards and so great about this job is you can get really granular and you can, you can really geek, <laughs> geek out. Um, but still it, it still sort of informs, you know, how you approach something like the experience or some of our other shows. Right. There's a thing that sticks in my mind where uh, toward the end of the Next Generation feature films, uh, Jonathan Frakes was quoted as saying, I think that Star Trek fans really want these to be action movies. And I think that, you know, I, I saw a video online totally disagreeing with that. And I think that that expresses the views of m myself and a lot of fans that we don't particularly want Star Trek or shows like it to be action movies. We want them to be smart, you know, just basically the smarter the better. Yeah. I 1000% agree with you. I, I, you know, when you're doing action, I think you want to do it right. And I think you want to be inventive. And there's certainly a lot of action in the expanse and there's some action sequences in childhood's end, but childhood's end in particular and the Arthur C. Clarke novel in particular didn't go for the easy sort of set piece action sequence. Um, and you know, I, I hate to say this, but, but some of it's, some of childhood's ends, some of the, movies and things like that that ripped it off went that route in a way that I thought made those things less interesting than they could have been. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so one thing I want to ask you about is from your 
perspective as a TV executive, I mean, I, I, these shows get canceled, like uh, Farscape and Firefly in particular, that everybody I know loves. And I recognize that my friends are not representative of the general public, but I have trouble <laughs> sure understanding. Sure they are. <laughs> I, I just have trouble understanding how shows that so many people that I know love so much end up getting canceled. Can you explain that to me? Just in a general sense? Yeah, just or in a general a... sense, yeah. Um, well, 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 for well, space look, opera it... shows in particular, I guess. Well, you know, um, we we get a lot of grief for this that I think is kind of undeserved because we do um, more original programming than people realize. So when you're doing more original programming, the odds are you're you, you know you're not going to be able to continue to renew all of them. Um, I will tell you that the worst day you can have in this job <laughs> is the day you do that. Not just when you have to deliver the awful news to the producers and writers that you've spent, you know, years with um, and and really feel like a, a very personal connection with, but then the aftermath <laughs> of the fan base who inevitably finds your email or something, um, <laughs> or or lights up those uh, you know message boards. Um, it's a real horrible thing. Um, and it's something we try to avoid as much as we can, but just, you know, the practical parts of the job and the, you know, shows that kind of run their course and things like that take over and, and you just have to do it. But um, I think the sci-fi fans, because they're probably more passionate than the average fan, take it a little harder. <laughs> um, so I get it. And, and I'm one of those people, you know, I am, I'm certainly one of those people. There's nothing I hate more than when a show I've invested this time in to, you know, leaves after a year or two. And, and particularly when they leave me with some unanswered questions, because it's just like, well, that's terrible, because I, I, I wanted to find that out, or I wanted to live with these people longer. So with every show, with every cancellation, you know, I think that people just feel like we're in here just sort of knee-jerking, let's cancel this, pick up that. A lot of behind-the-scenes thought, you know, a lot of ideas go into it, a lot of ways to sort of honor the audience that have been there. I know it doesn't feel like that all the time, but that's that is the truth. Well, I mean, I can definitely understand if a show is not getting great ratings that you cancel it, that this is a business. But it seems like because the science fiction fans are so passionate, it seems like a lot of shows that it seems like they have a potential more so than their the numbers by themselves would suggest. I mean, if you look at the Star Trek, the original series, there were probably tons and tons of shows at that time that had much better ratings than that that are completely forgotten today whereas star trek has grown into this multi-billion dollar franchise yeah and, and look that's part of the gig that's part of the, my job and, and our job is just a network i mean i i am proud to say that you know 12 monkeys and just to use that as a as an example um did well for us but it didn't the ratings didn't make it such an obvious no-brainer to go to the second season of that show. But by the time we saw, you know, three or four episodes, we recognized the quality and we said, you know what, that's not how we're going to make this decision. We just think that it, we think it's a good show that's getting better and better every week. And season two is, I've seen most of is better than season one even. And um, that we, we, when we can, we do do that. Um, and, and I, I don't think, I don't think people notice it until they cancel it sometimes, but, uh, but we have, and, and, and why I like working here and why I like working for this corporation and this channel in particular is we are willing to, to make those bets on quality. Yeah. I mean, cause it would seem like kind of a no brainer to me to bring back shows like, like Farscape and Firefly that have such passionate fan bases, but I, maybe I don't know all the, uh, factors, but what is, 
why do networks take risks on completely new shows that no one's ever heard of when there are these really popular shows that have been canceled sitting around that could be brought back? Um, you know, look, I, so, some of it could just be uh, <laughs> sort of the ego of of, of these jobs, maybe that it's like that was their show. I want to do something that's wholly my own. And if it lives somewhere else, it really is not, you know, th there is a sitting with a writer from the very beginning kind of connection you have working on a pilot, working for a show that's, that's hard to get when you take a show that's, um, you know, lives for three seasons or two seasons on another network. I mean, I think you're seeing it happening. I think some cable channels have done it. I think that some of the Netflixes and the Amazons of the world have picked up shows that, um, that lived somewhere else. So I, I do think the world's changing that way. And I think it may continue to, because, you know, in a show, a show, so a show like 12 monkeys, just to use an example, um, while it didn't, you know, get the linear rating out of the gate that we wanted, it, had we canceled it, right. We'd be kicking ourselves right now because the VOD numbers were so spectacular. You know, and so we saw the big audience came to it that way. I think you're probably going to see more and more of that. And you may see a show canceled prematurely and then a network reconsider because of the viewers finding it at another platform. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that growing up, you would watch Twilight Zone with your dad. And I really love those sorts of anthology shows. I don't know if you've seen Black Mirror, but that was one of the things we loved the most on this show in the past. <laughs> I not only saw Black Mirror, but we chased that show <laughs> about as hard as you possibly could. Um, I thought it was phenomenal. I got to know the creators really well. I, I adore that show. It's the closest thing um, that I've seen to the Twilight Zone. So, you know, that was one of those things that kind of the one that got away. But, um, but I very much agree with you. I think that's an amazing show. But so you think that you'll, you'll definitely try to grab something, an anthology show like that, if another one comes along? Well, I think the bar is so high in anthology um, that, that you got to be choosy. Now, there's a show called um, Channel Zero Candle Cove um, that we have greenlit that's um, going to be sort of anthology by installments. So, so six episode installments each year, which is sort of like an anthology, but extended. It's not going to be the weekly anthology, like a Twilight Zone or a Black Mirror or something like that. But, um, but I just, I, yeah, I love that. I mean, Twilight Zone is my favorite science fiction show of all time. Um, you know, and I've, I've gotten into deep, intense arguments over Star with Star Trek fans <laughs> over this, but, uh, for me, it's Twilight Zone. It's just, uh, for better or for worse. Um, that, that's my thing. So I, I would love that. But I think you also have to acknowledge that if you're going to do that, you really need um, the Rod Sterling. You really need the, the person behind the camera who can, who can create those kinds of stories each week because bad anthology is really bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I mean, like, I think a lot of the, one of the reasons that Twilight Zone and Star Trek, those shows were so good is because they brought in science fiction authors. I, know, I mean, you're doing this now, but they brought in science fiction novelists to write for them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like, it just seems natural to me because I'm John and I who started the show are so involved with short stories. It just seems natural to me to just take all the best short stories of the past 10 years and turn it into an anthology show. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's it. There are practical reasons why it's hard to. Sometimes those short stories have different owners, and there, so there's ownership complications there. Then it's sort of sometimes they're so diverse 
that it becomes impractical to be able to produce them on a, on a, anything that resembles a timely television schedule. Um, but those walls are starting to break down. And, uh, you know, I think that's an interesting idea. It's just about, it's also kind of about finding the stories that thread together sort of thematically. And that's what was so brilliant about the Twilight Zone. Even though they were very diverse kinds of stories, they all felt like they were of this, you know, of the same mind, certainly because of Rod Serling, but also of the same sort of themes, the same sort of ideas. Because you do need to at least have some sort of thread. I mean, you mentioned Black Mirror, um, and that, and that's sort of the perils of technology and the perils of that. That you know, that's the title, Black Mirror, and 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 they've done a brilliant job at that. And until you find that, it's I think it's a tough thing to just jump into. Yeah. And then, you know, when the, the Sci-Fi Channel first launched, when I was in middle school, the sort of what I imagined in my head, what I, what I dreamed it would be is they would have talk shows where I'd interview my favorite authors. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and, I mean, part of the reason I do this podcast, obviously, is because I'm interested in that sort of thing. But there's never really been stuff like that. I mean, there's Prisoners of Gravity in Canada went for a while and sort of La- Sword and Laser mm-hmm. was on YouTube for a while. Yeah. Um, is there any, like, could you talk about like, what are the factors involved in launching a science fiction talk show like that on a TV network? Well, I think it's challenging. A show like that would be challenging today because I I cobble together a lot of the interviews with my favorite film directors or whatever, just, you know, online. And I think it's just, it's so much easier um, online to do stuff like that for the geeks like you and I who, who can't get enough of that than to really um, launch, I, in my opinion, launch a television show that are, that's going to generate enough interest week to week uh, among enough of an audience to, to keep it going. Some of these things, you know, magazine shows are hard for the same reason. When you can just, when you can just click your way out to to your favorite author and find Arthur C. Clarke essays or old Arthur C. Clarke interviews or whatever, and just sort of do that online, it's hard for me to imagine a show that would feel urgent enough or relevant enough to get an audience there um, on a, on enough of a week to week basis to do it. But I could be wrong. Somebody may prove me wrong. I mean, I watch Charlie Rose every night. You know, my wife's like, are, what are you, an 80-year-old man? You know, but, so I'm, you know, I am very into that, and I have a lot of patience for that. And, you know, if I don't watch it that night, I'll watch it the next morning. So I hear what you're saying. I just don't know if, uh, if given the choices you have with original programming, you'd want to spend it there. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, okay, so we're almost out of time. So uh, I guess just the last thing I wanted to ask you is just, you know, it's so frustrating for science fiction fans to, as you mentioned, to love these shows so much and just have them go off the air. And then what I've heard is that by the time you hear that the show is going off the air, it's really too late for you as a fan to do anything. That decision has already been made. But so obviously with all these shows, based on some of my favorite books coming out, I just want to know what can I and what can our listeners do now or you know, in the days to come to make sure that these shows don't disappear on us. Watch them, tell their friends to watch them, tweet about them, Facebook post about them, fill up the comment boards about stuff you like, because like I said, we're watching that stuff, all of it, you know, um, buzz in the, in the day and age of this many great programs becomes a reason to pick up a show. Um, in a way that it never, this year in particular, in a way that it's never been before in this business. So don't underestimate your ability as a viewer and as a passionate fan to really get out there. And you have the forums now. There's sci-fi.com, there's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's 
There's all that stuff. Um, you can simply tell all of your friends to watch it, and somehow, some way, you'll probably end up getting to a Nielsen box owner. Um, uh, but I really, I, I really do mean. I think the power is in the hand of the consumer in a way it hasn't been. Um, but the earlier, the better. Really, the earlier, the better. I think there is some truth to. Um, man, if those fans would have come out and mobilized the way they do after a cancellation during a run, <laughs> in some form, it would have been a lot easier. And, and and a guy like me who has bosses and our and my bosses have bosses, we need to build a case about why to pick up a show. And if we have these things we can point to, um, it makes our job a lot easier. Right. I guess you want to just to remind people what are the things again that they should watch now or in the next month or so. Well, it would it, it the, the first three the first three biggies um, are Childhood's End miniseries, the Expanse series, um, followed by Magicians. Um, then there is going to be a couple. Uh, Hunters will come after that. Twelve Monkeys season two, short after that. I mean, I could go on and on. I could name our whole schedule, but that feels sort of rude. I will say uh, because I haven't talked about it, and I've got a whole crew of people who who work hard on these things. We have an alternative show that I I, I kind of think your audience is going to dig called The Internet Ruined My Life. Oh yeah, I, just, <laughs> uh, I looked at that. Yeah. It's really fun and provocative and interesting and deals with this digital world and, and how one wrong tweet, one wrong Facebook post can really impact your life. And I just think it's great. That one's also going to be coming. But um, that one, along with these big scripted shows, are, are the ones I'd love your viewers to, uh, to prioritize. Yeah. No, I, I interviewed John Ronson earlier this year, and he had a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And that was kind of looking at the, uh, the TV version of that book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, it's 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 real. It's a really fun show, and it, uh, I, I think it oddly, I think it fits our network um, because of you know all all of the stuff we do around technology and how tech savvy our we know our audience base is. I think they're going to dig it, and I think your your podcast fan should dig it. But thanks for having me. This was really fun. Yeah. All right. Great. So we uh, we've been speaking with Bill McGoldrick. So thank you so much for joining us. You got it. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Bill McGoldrick for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Daniel in Idaho, who writes, Time well spent. Charlie Rose, look out. This guy knows how to do an interview. So big thanks again to Daniel in Idaho for that great review. Big thanks as well to Alex Cornish and Leon Fournier, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a special thank you to Kathleen Arbuckle, who just became the latest PayPal patron to be making monthly contributions to the show. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, Tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. 
Thank you for listening.